Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning in to this 10-part series on health equity. Over the course of this series, we will discuss a broad range of topics connected to health equity. For additional resources and information, be sure to check the podcast notes or visit mphtc.org slash health equity. Thank you for joining this episode of Tackling Equity centered on race, specifically on African-American health inequities. Next week, we'll continue exploring race by looking at Native American health. We'll start today's episode with an interview with Quinny Harris from the National WIC Association. Hello, my name is Derek Willis. I'm the director of Iowa's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, and pleased to be a part of this Health Equity podcast series. We have Quinny Harris, who is the director of Health Equity and Community Partnerships at the National WIC Association. Uh, directing community health and health equity projects for the association. Welcome, Quinny. Thank you. Very excited to be here. Yes. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about your work? Um, sure, absolutely. Um, so I have now been at the National WIC Association um, over five years, um, and my work here at the National WIC Association generally falls into three broad categories. Um, the first of which is um, community health. Um, that work involves a lot of grant writing um, for the association, uh, specifically focused on community health projects and policy systems and environmental change projects. Um, that enable us to partner with our members who are state and local WIC agencies across the country to improve community health. Um, and um, that work is re uh, done um, really to promote health equity um, at the local level um, and to improve health outcomes for WIC participants um, in, the, in the communities um, where they live. Um, the second uh, major category of my work is storytelling. Um, I actually have a background in photo voice, um, which is a methodology where you're working with the community, you give them cameras and they go out into the community and they're able to take pictures and they're able to frame the, their life circumstances through those pictures. Those pictures become the data that you use um, for a project when you're doing photo voice. Um, so with that background and also having done oral history um, in the past, um, I um, was actually an Africana Studies major undergrad. Um, so that um, really has translated very well into storytelling work, which I'm able to do um, in my role here at the National WIC Association to really share the impact of the WIC program on communities across the country. Um, and then the, the, the third uh, major bucket of my work is really around um, health equity. Um, and as an organization, we are um, at the beginning of our health equity journey, um, and really we're working to um, look at ways that we can um, really elevate um, the importance of health equity in our work and um, operationalize and institutionalize um, health equity in the WIC program. Uh, we've been focused on a number of internal activities as an organization to build knowledge among staff. Um, but you're also uh, working externally and collecting best practices from our mem members to see what um, is happening across the country. And we're hoping to really be able to um, amplify that work and, and build off of that work as we move forward um, with our health equity projects. Thank you. Great, great work. And Definitely work that is needed in this this field and in this area. Are there any things related to to what what is perceived of WIC out there that that your work is is to dispel that and what WIC is all about? I mean, it seems like you're doing far more 
than what the average person would think about when they think about WIC, you know? Well, I think um, by and large, the, the largest myth um, about the WIC program is that WIC is a formula program. Um, the WIC program certainly provides formula to participants um, who are needing formula, but WIC um, is a huge advocate for breastfeeding um, across the country. Uh, many of our clinics have breastfeeding peer counselors, um, and we hear over and over again from participants that the breastfeeding peer counselors have been a key support um, in their breastfeeding journeys um, because most of them are available 24-7. Um, you can text them, call them if you are having an issue, and they will walk you through it. Um, they've been there. They've gone through. They've had that experience, and they're there to um, assist current participants who um, are attempting to breastfeed and, and might need that um, extra um, help to get them through that difficult process of breastfeeding. Um, and then I think another myth is that people just aren't, well, not necessarily a myth, but people just aren't aware of all of the services that are provided by the WIC program. Um, so there's four pillars to the WIC program, um, the first of which uh, is breastfeeding support, which I've already highlighted. There's also nutrition education um, that's provided in the WIC clinic, and that's individualized to the families um, that we're serving because we know each family's uh, situation is different. So we have uh, professional and paraprofessional staff um, um, on staff at each WIC clinic who are um, doing that individualized nutrition education. Then um, WIC programs also do referrals out to um, health and social services. And there's been a number of studies that have shown that WIC participants, um, because of those referrals out to healthcare providers, uh, want to have higher immunization rates. Um, it also shows that because of those referrals out, that um, WIC participants are less likely to have dental caries um, than um, other low-income uh, families. So we know that the, that the referrals are really important, and we know that um, it's really helping to improve the life um, circumstances of our participants. Um, and then the, the final pillar of the WIC uh, program is the healthy food package, um, which uh, we uh, really um, try our best to make sure that it is um, culturally competent and it's meeting the need um, of the participants. Um, and the family, and the, it's meeting the need of participants um, in the communities um, that we're serving. So, Quinny, when you um, speak of health equity, could you actually give us a definition that your organization has uh, defined and give our audience um, a sense of understanding as when we say health equity, what are we talking about? Um, sure, absolutely. So, um, we worked very closely um, um, as an organization to develop um, a, a health equity definition, and this is something that we did um, also in partnership with our board um, and with our members. Um, and the definition that we've come up with for, our, for us as an organization is that health equity is the ability of all individuals and families to achieve optimal health, irrespective of their identity, race, ability, or class. This requires equitable access to nutritious foods, breastfeeding support, chronic disease prevention and management services, safe living environments, and good jobs with fair pay. It necessitates removing obstacles to family's short and long-term health and well-being, including poverty, discrimination, and institutional racism and other forms of bias expressed through housing, healthcare, education, labor, and other public policies. When you're defining what health equity means to your organization, 
what were some of the steps that you took and what was the process that you used to come up with a definition related to health equity? So I think the the, the challenge that we face um, as we um, as an organization begin to think about how we would define health equity and what was important to us as we uh, move forth with this work was really trying to narrow down on what um, specific topics uh, were most um, important to us as a community um, because public, the field of public health is very broad and when we think about health equity there's many different uh, ways that you can approach health equity. Um, you can um, approach it kind of from a, a, a race lens, you can approach it from a class lens, you can kind of think about um, ability, disability, status, and those were all things that we thought about. Um, and those were all things that we that we that were important for us to include in our definition, um, because uh, serving such a, a diverse community as we do, uh, we represent all 50 states. Um, we represent um, Native American organization and all of the territories as well. So our community is extremely diverse. Um, so we wanted to make sure that our definition could speak to the diversity of, of our community, but also being WIC. Um, and having the focus on maternal and child health, um, it was really important for us to really think about food for one, um, because that's one pillar of the WIC program, um, the healthy food package, and thinking about um, nutritious food and all of the equity um, issues related to food access um, and food security. Um, and then also breastfeeding um, is being really uh, critical to the work that we do as an organization and thinking about the fact that there are some communities that are not breastfeeding friendly. Um, and then also thinking about the fact that there's racial uh, disparities um, in terms of uh, breastfeeding initiation and duration rate. Um, that was something that was really important to us um, as an organization to make sure that we could really pull that out um, and to be able to include that in our definition. The WIC program also works very closely with healthcare providers. Um, another pillar of the program is um, referring out to um, healthcare providers and social services. Um, so a lot of my work has really been working closely with healthcare providers, uh, particularly partnering with the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists, um, also known as ACOG, to strengthen our relationships uh, with healthcare providers through community clinical linkages. Um, so a lot of the work that I've been doing at the local level um, involves coalitions, so really having healthcare providers to be a part of the coalitions so that they could provide their expertise um, and also to really help to um, um, help to dispel dispel some of the myths um, about the WIC program because something that I've really been surprised by um, since I've been in the WIC program is that um, a lot of the uh, key partners for WIC um, oftentimes are not fully aware of all the services that WIC provides. Um, so that has been a really critical piece um, of our engagement um, in this space is uh, making sure that we can strengthen that relationship to healthcare providers so that we can facilitate cross referrals. We're referring out to healthcare providers and they're also referring um, to the WIC program so that we can um, ensure that the families are getting um, the, the best support um, that they need in order to uh, live healthy lives. Um, so those were kind of like the foundations for us as we started to work to put together our definition. But we also knew, like thinking about the social determinants of health, we knew that our families don't um, necessarily exist 
um, in a vacuum. Uh, when they go back into their communities, they are also facing the the social um, context of their local community. So thinking about uh, transportation and the role that that might play um, in terms of can our participants even get to a WIC clinic? Um, and that's something that I see a lot when I'm out in the field on site visits. Um, I'm thinking about going out and visiting um, Appalachian communities and southwestern Virginia and them talking about the mountains and how that's such a huge barrier for some of their participants to be able to drive to the, the local WIC clinic, particularly um, during the winter when there might be uh, snowstorms and the roads become almost impassable. Um, so transportation was one issue that was really important for us. Housing was another really important issue. Um, and just thinking about um, Baltimore, uh, we funded Johns Hopkins University uh, for one of our projects. So um, really thinking about all of the housing issues that uh, WIC families are facing and how that was really important and how if the families don't have secure and safe housing, how that might limit their ability to per even participate in a program um, such as WIC. Um, so those are just kind of some of the things that we thought about. Um, we also included education, labor, public policies, just really thinking about the fact that um, our communities, um, our participants do not exist um, in a vacuum and that they, they are really having to, um, they're really having to uh, um, operate in the social context um, in their local communities and how that was really important for us to be able to capture that um, in our definition. Um, so, for the WIC community, one of the things that's um, really um, top of mind when we think about health equity is really thinking about the maternal and child health outcomes. Um, breastfeeding uh, being kind of an evergreen um, issue in the WIC community, always uh, working to increase the numbers of um, the initiation and duration rate of breastfeeding in the WIC community, um, but also thinking about that through an equity lens and looking um, at the, the racial um, disparities um, in breastfeeding and thinking about ways that we can really tackle that work. Uh, one of the things that, is, that um, has really been coming out of the literature um, recently is um, thinking about first food deserts. Um, so those communities that may actually not be conducive to breastfeeding um, because there is really not the, the supports that mothers would need in order to be um, to breastfeed their children. Um, they may not have access to healthy foods. They may not have the, the social support from family members or other community members to be able to breastfeed um, in public spaces um, when um, it'll be necessary for them to breastfeed or it might not even be safe um, in a neighborhood for them to walk about. So just really thinking about how some communities are not even conducive to breastfeeding. Um, and then also thinking about infant and maternal mortality. Uh, maternal mortality has been an issue that's really been um, in the headlines a lot lately and it's something that is very top of mind for the WIC community because this is an issue that is impacting the families that uh, we are serving as an organization. Um, we actually um, develop a task force, uh, a maternal mortality task force, and it's something that um, we are really looking um, at as an organization and thinking about ways uh, that WIC can play an active role in addressing um, this issue um, and, and really thinking about um, how it's impacting communities across the country where WIC participants live. Thank you. When I, uh, I hear you talk, Quinny, I, I think things that come to mind are things like the social determinants of health and, and looking at um, food deserts and looking at safe neighborhoods. Um, I'm wondering if you could just speak to uh, what people say in terms of 
racial health disparities are tied to class, access, neighborhoods, etc., and not race. Do you think we must consider race as its own uh, health determinant? Absolutely. Um, so actually last year, the NYU School of Medicine released a report showing that life expectancy is linked to racial and ethnic segregation in U.S. cities. This was most apparent in the city of Chicago, where there was nearly a 30-year difference in life expectancy between neighborhoods in different parts of the city. The communities with the lowest life expectancy were lower income and mostly black and brown communities. And those with the highest life expectancy were more influent and mostly white communities. While class, access, neighborhood, and other factors contribute to the life expectancy gap, structural racism is a major driver. For one, redlining and U.S. housing policies created racial and ethnic segregation in Chicago and subsidized the accumulation of wealth in white communities through profit income gained from home and ownership. Also, many black and brown families in the city are crippled by trauma and toxic stress from gun violence, economic disinvestment from their neighborhood, school closings, police shootings, food deserts, and a disproportionate rates of infant and maternal mortality. As public health professionals, it's crucial to center race in our work in order to better, under, to better meet the needs of, of the diverse communities we serve by offering culturally sensitive and trauma-informed care. Thank you. I, uh, you know, you hear a lot of conversations um, recently that um, has highlighted and, and even talked about the importance of moving away from not racist to anti-racist. Um, what does this mean for you, uh, your work, uh, the communities that you work in, and how can we see this play out in, in practice? Um, so one form of racism is bullying. Imagine me as a black teenager going to my white college roommate's house for Thanksgiving and being re repeatedly called brownie face by his five-year-old cousins in front of the entire family. Then imagine an entire room full of adults responding with indifference and carrying on with their Thanksgiving preparations. This actually happened to me in Long Island, New York. I'm sure many of the people in that room would have said that they are not racist, but in that moment, by being passive bystanders, they were complicit in a racist act. In this moment in time, I think anti-racist work, which I define as actively working to dismantle racist systems of oppression, is critical to move us forward as a society. Many health indicators suggest that the U.S. is on a downward trend and racial and ethnic minorities are being disproportionately impacted by poor health outcomes. Much of my work at the National WIC Association seeks to address these racial inequities through state and local community health projects. We actually funded a policy system and environmental change project at Truman Medical Center WIC in Kansas City, Missouri back in 2016. Their community needs assessment revealed high rates of obesity and diabetes and limited access to food, healthy foods in their tar target area, which was 70% black and 17% Hispanic. They started by building a community coalition with Children's Mercy, Linwood Family YMCA, and other community organizations. Then they partnered with two mobile markets to bring low-cost, high-quality fruits and vegetables directly to the target community and provided 200 families with redeemable produce prescriptions. 
Next, they focus on marketing and promotion through a one, two, three, four, five, fantastic education campaign to promote healthy habits in the local community. The mobile markets were a huge success, and at the end of the project, they sought authorization from the state to get mobile markets approved in both Missouri and Kansas for the WIC program. I think this is a great example of public health being anti-racist in practice. They started by identifying an area of high need that was 87% black and brown. Then they made environmental changes in the community to address the high rates of chronic disease and limited healthy food access. Thanks, Quinny. I am uh, from the Kansas City area, and I know the, uh, the hospitals you're talking about and the uh, Linwood Association as well. And so uh, great work in that particular community, and I, I understand the, the needs of that community as well. Um, could you also um, just touch on the difference between considering race as a health determinant and racism as a health determinant, and how could that inform our practice as we move forward? Race is a social construct used to group people with similar physical and cultural characteristics. If one were to use race as a health determinant, you would falsely assume that poor health outcomes in black and brown communities are attributable to innate characteristics to these groups. And direct services or individualized education is the best solution for improving their poor health outcomes. Racism, on the other hand, is an unfair system of structuring opportunity and assigning value based on physical appearance. When we use racism as a health determinant, it allows us to consider a range of factors such as policies, societal structures, socioeconomic status, geography, transportation, housing, social capital, and labor practices that impact health outcomes. In this instance, it's more apparent that social factors have a profound impact on health, and this clearly aligns with academic research. Take, for instance, a study that indicates that people with black-sounding names on their resume, like Deshaun or Jasmine, are less likely to be called in for an interview than people with white-sounding names on their resume, like Connor or Molly. Less interviews translate to less jobs. Less jobs translate to more poverty. More poverty translates to more hunger, less health insurance, more substandard housing conditions, more homelessness, more trauma, and poor health outcomes overall. Individualized education is no longer sufficient and must be combined with or replaced by policies, systems, and environmental changes, such as cultural humility training for human resources professionals and ongoing checks and balances to ensure more racial and ethnic minorities are moving through the professional pipeline at organizations. This is anti-racist work and practice. For public health practitioners and um, public health students, what are some of the concrete steps that they can take to move towards anti-racist policies and practices within public health? And, and, and also ask, why, why does this matter as well? So I think it's really important that your anti-racism work starts with inward-facing activities before focusing on the external work. A good place to start is the Harvard University Implicit Bias Test. Also, before your next retreat or team building exercise, have all of your colleagues or your classmates take it and then discuss it as a group. 
if you have the resources to do so, consider conducting an organization-wide racial equity training with an organization that has expertise in equity, diversity, and inclusion, such as a local university or nonprofit. Use a validated racial equity tool to assess your organization's, organization's policies and practices. The Government Alliance on Race and Equity has several resources publicly available on their website. You could also consider sharing articles, TED Talks, and other anti-racist anti resources in your staff newsletter. Use any findings or lessons learned from the internal work to guide your external activities. And be careful not to make assumptions. Engage and foster relationships with other anti-racist champions who can help guide your work. And at the beginning, you um, asked, why does this matter? So for me, as I think um, back to our last president, uh, Barack Obama, who was the 44th president of the United States, um, would that have even been possible if the civil rights movement never happened? And I think that in itself speaks to the importance of doing anti-racist work, because anti-racist work will help us to build a better future that's more equitable and inclusive. Now that we've heard some of the activities and work happening with the National WIC Association and the importance of considering health equity and national policy, local practice, and everything in between, we'll hear what Blackhawk County, Iowa is doing to build a more equitable health department and community. Today we're going to interview uh, Dr. Nafisa Sise Ebanye, uh, who is the public health director for uh, Blackhawk County Public Health. Uh, just a little bit of back about her before we get started in the interview. She uh, earned her doctorate degree in public health education from Texas A&M University and her master's in public health from San Diego State University. Dr. Ebanye has worked with different organizations conducting research, implementing health promotion programs, and advocating for vulnerable populations. Furthermore, she is a person coming from a diverse background and affluent in four languages. Um, so she's accustomed to various cultures, which is necessary when developing public health programs nationally and globally. Uh, we are honored to have her as a, as a guest today. And um, I will be asking a, a number of questions um, related to her work in Black Hawk County and, and then her thoughts on a number of issues related to um, healthcare equity and healthcare disparities. So welcome, uh, Dr. Ibanye. Thank you, thank you. Um, I would like to start just by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the work that you do in Black Hawk County. Okay, so a little bit about myself. Um, as you can tell, my name is Unique. Um, I am originally from um, Niger, which is located in, in West Africa, um, and I arrived in the United States in 1989, and I've lived um, what I considered um, in most parts of the region of the U.S., so I've lived in the Midwest, um, in the East Coast, um, Vermont, Texas, um, California, um, and now I'm back where I started my, my U.S. journey, so I'm in, I'm in the Midwest in, in Iowa. Um, and it's just been an incredible, um, an incredible journey for me. And just being here, um, I consider myself, um, you know, starting to become an Iowan. Um, 
And I um, have been with the Blackhawk County um, Public Health Department for three years now. Um, we've gone through uh, quite a bit of transformation, but it's been an exciting journey. So Blackhawk County is located in the northeastern part of um, Iowa. We are approximately 132,000 um, in population. Um, we have, we're predominantly, um, our population is predominantly white, Caucasian, but we also have um, one of the largest African-American populations and an influx of um, immigrant populations. Um, we have Bosnia, Bosnian, Congolese, Liberian, Burmese, um, Hispanic populations. Thank you for, uh, for choosing Iowa as a place that you have been for three years. Um, <laughs> definitely um, see a need for diversity and people, especially uh, in leadership positions that come from diverse backgrounds. So um, welcome and thank you. Thank you for being here. I guess the, the other question that, that I, I would like to gain a little bit more information on is around just um, equity and some of your work in Blackhawk County. Could you tell us a, a little bit about that and um, what was the catalyst for some of this work and, and why do you see it as so important to you? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that attracted me with this role um, at Blackhawk was the demographic changes that are occurring. Um, one, I, I think there, there's for several years, um, there's been an influx of immigrant population, but outside of that also, there's a large African-American population that has been um, in, in uh, Blackhawk County for several decades, originating from Mississippi. So those things um, really attracted me. Um, I love diversity. I love the idea of having a community that is in, inclusive and engaged with each other and embrace the different um, cultures that we, we have. Um, I think that's, that's actually the beauty of this country, the, the diversity that is in the United States. United States is, is something to um, embrace. Um, and so with that, um, our Board of, Board of Health, um, was was very intentional in um, recruiting um, someone that understood understands public health, understand the demographic changes, um, and is intentional in reaching out to the different um, populations and seeking their input and strategies in terms of how we can um, effectively implement public health programs um, that is tailored um, to their needs. Um, so that was an exciting opportunity um, to, to come to. Um, and, and so the, the equity um, journey really began um, when we applied for the Cresty Foundation um, Emerging Leaders Program. It's a, it's, it's a program that really um, helps to transform our health department. And so I'm, I'm truly grateful for the Cresty Foundation. Um, but when we, we originally um, submitted our proposal, it was to become a, a chief health strategist. Um, and I like to use the term community health strategist um, because the term chief um, makes it seem like you're, you're the leader, you, 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 I guess you, you know more. Um, I, 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 I find that to be a slightly elitist. 
So I, I, I like to use the term community health strategist um, because I feel it's more inclusive. And so, um, but we were, we were trying to understand what are some of the factors, those um, determinants of health um, that the health department can really zoom in on um, to change um, health outcomes for, for Black Hawk County. Um, and, um, you know, we first started thinking about education and how everything we do has education, um, whether it's the, it, it, it's the sector or whether it's um, using education to inform people um, was, was such a big factor. But in November of 2018, um, we received the unfortunate news from the 24-7 um, uh, report that we were considered the worst place to be um, Black and to reside um, in Waterloo and Cedar Falls. And so that really impacted the, the community. Um, it, it impacted us um, morally. Um, it was, it was um, just you, you can just see the the negative emotions um and and sadness that that came out of this um but but it also it was it was a wake-up call that we needed um i i myself as a newcomer um the information wasn't surprising to me um the inequities in blackout county they're they're so visible um, and, and, and that's what every, every newcomer comes in and sees how segregated the community is, how um, we, we have an abundance of resources, but the struggles that people have in terms of navigating those resources are pretty vis visible. Um, but so sometimes you have to be able to use bad, bad news for, for good, for good. Um, and so that's the approach the health department took um, and say, okay, we have this bad news now. Now what, it gives us an opportunity to um, invite our uh, stakeholders and community partners and really engage in a conversation around equity um, in such a way to start thinking about transformation. Um, and it's not just transformation at the organizational level, but it's transformation at the individual level. So even as leaders, um, when you think about equity, you have to also be willing to take some time and, and, and evaluate yourself, your perspective, and the way you, um, you yourself navigate the world and, and your system. So that's, that's really what started our journey. Mm -hmm. I asked you to, to talk a little bit about you know some of the things that you've done to to reach out and engage and have conversations with folks that represent diverse populations in your county and in your work um i w I was curious to know if you've reached out to um populations and had conversations i i I as a researcher like the participatory action approach to that and wanted to know if you have done any kind of work in that area to really kind of convene an opportunity for people to talk about what are some of the needs and some of the concerns in your communities. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, we, we have. I'll, I'll give an example. I'll give two examples. Um, one is our community health needs assessment. Currently, um, we, we're going through the process. And um, 
So originally when um, it was sent out and you run the analysis, you see that it's predominantly um, whites of upper class that were responding to the survey. And so um, I talked to the team and I said, you know, what are some of the strategies do we need to implement um, to, for, to ensure that this um, assessment is reflective of the demographic that is in Blackhawk County and to make sure that we are, um, we, we are intentionally um, trying to reach um, and hear um, the, and, and gain, and, and hear the voices of others. And so we've had to implement different strategies with our partners. We had um, Head Start, um, for example, Tri-County Head Start, that took the surveys to, to people. And that's another thing, as, as we do equity work, um, there's, it, it, the expectation of people coming to us has to be changed. So for public health, we always have to take an approach of how do we get to the people versus the people just waiting for the people to come to us. And so um, our, our partners at Tri-County, they took the surveys to the homes as they were doing the home assessment. Um, I um, personally went to the churches, the African-American churches, talked to them about the importance of the surveys, um, meeting with the African-American pastors. Um, and so we were able to do um, some of the data collection there. Um, and looking at different, just different strategies of where to, um, to, to, to place those surveys that, um, so that people can, can take that. Um, our, we, we've taken this um, systems um, approach to understanding equity, um, and we, um, working with Engaging Inquiry, we asked our stakeholders um, what accounts for the level of equity within our community. And so we created this equity map and so right now, the strategy is to socialize the map with our um, community members. And so we're going to take it out to them and ask them if they resonate with the different factors that they're seeing on this map. And what is their story? So if they say, like, yes, they resonate, right? We ask them, like, what, how do you resonate? Or just open-ended, um, how do you navigate this environment? What has been... Um, some of your positive or negative experiences. And so um, for us, it's also taken that approach of um, empowering people and, and ensuring that they understand the importance um, they have in contributing to this process and, and, and really taking an angle that um, the solutions that we will implement for this, collect, um, this community is collective. So it's no longer us leaders saying, oh, this is what we think you all need, but ensuring that um, they are able to say, this is what we think we need. And so, um, so that's just been exciting. It's been a hard, um, it's a hard process because um, you know, as, as leaders, we're, we're trained to be very solution oriented, quick to solving problems. And, and sometimes, um, with equity work, it requires patience, it requires understanding, um, it requires meeting people where they're at. Um, and so it's, it's just been a humbling experience, um, I believe, for my myself, my staff, and, and also our, our community partners and, and organizations.
Yeah. I appreciate um, um, you taking time to explain that process. Um, and I and I value it, and I and I I understand too. I I do a lot of this work as well, and I know that it it is a journey. But people are quick to rush to solutions, and so um, finding the the uh, individuals who are who are willing to work and work with you and to stay with you on that journey sometimes can be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the can you speak to some of the surprises uh, that you've seen so far? Anything that could stick out to you in terms of, you know, uh, as you're doing this work, what are some things that surprise you uh, through the process? I think one of the things that surprised me is the realization of how much equity work is close to the heart and it's it's a it's a value base. So um you, you can't work at Blackhawk County Health Department and and say you you uh you believe in equity while you're in the department, but then once you leave you you don't right it's it's just you, you can't do that because um the more and more we we train about equity the more and more we're engaging the more and more some of our personal biases like just starts to be highlighted and i think for 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 myself as a leader is how do i create that space also in in our organization so people are able to be vulnerable you it's a, equity so it's, it's about vulnerability it's about also being able to say i actually don't know right or i'm i'm willing to know i don't understand being able to be um uh, uncomfortable and so i think for us it's, it's that's been the hardest part is how do we always ensure that um, people' uh, emotions are also um, not necessarily protected, but we have strategies to deal with when there's those um, emotional breakdowns. Um, and so, um, but 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 it's it's really um, now even in recruiting staff, we do ask um, questions that that can help us zoom in. Um, a bit on in terms of okay, is this the person is this person a right fit for this organization? And we also give enough information for the person to determine whether they are they want to work at the at the health department in in and in, in particular with this framework. So Dr. Ibanye, if you could um, speak to the whole issue of uh, race. And health disparities. Uh, many people say racial health disparities are tied to class, um, access, neighborhoods, etc., and not necessarily race. I know this article that we were speaking on earlier really specifically identified African Americans. Um, and so, um, if you could talk about, you know, your thoughts related to um, health disparities being tied to class. Uh, access a neighborhood and, and not race. I'd like to hear your thoughts. So just to simplify, for me, um, race, the color of our skin, 
I, I mean, first of all, race is a social construct, right? Um, it, it, it's, it's something that has been defined by human beings. And so, um, so that's, that's num number one. I think that's where some of the issues stem from. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about um, racism as a determinant of health. Um, I think when we, when we, um, and, and from, and this is from a practitioner perspective, right? So when we, as practitioners, if you say race, most of the time the practitioner just sees, oh, it's the color of the skin, you know? And so what it does is that it just shows the data in comparison to whites and blacks, whites to Asians, whites to Hispanics. But what does that actually mean, right? So we're just highlighting these differences. But when you talk about racism as a determinant of health, now you're starting to look at the deeper issues, right? So that's where the issues of uh, access to um, quality housing, access to healthcare services, access to good education. That's when we start to have um, meaningful conversation about, okay, why is there barriers to that in the first place? But when you look at just race with data, it doesn't, it just says there's differences, but it doesn't push the practitioner to ask why are there these differences? And I think that's why even today, um, you see programs that are just tailored to like, okay, let's do diabetes prevention in the African-American community. But we're not getting funding to, to look at exactly why is there high rates of diabetes within the African-American community. Um, so it goes into just these transactional approaches that we, we take um, instead of solving the root cause of the problem. I think that's why we continue to see the differences in our health outcomes. Dr. Barnier, um, a lot of conversations recently um, that we've heard have highlighted the importance of moving from not racist to anti-racist. Um, what does this mean for you and, and your work, and how can you see it playing out in practice? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a that, that, that's a good. That's a very good question because I think that mainstream when 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 there's discussions about um, racism or maybe perhaps um, individual conversations occurring, there's an immediate reaction of um, in particular to our to 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 from from whites that um, I'm I'm not a racist. But what does that mean? What does it mean? It's it's like a person saying like, I'm a good person. Well, actually, what what does that mean, right? Um, I think um, it, it just it's it's a, it's a statement that truly doesn't have a a meaning. It's it's more of a of a defensive mechanism. It's like when somebody's saying I'm a good person. What what what's the reason why you're saying I'm a good person, right? But when you, um, you know, it's the same thing when you're saying I'm not a racist, why are you saying that, right? But I think that the statement anti-racist, when someone says for me, um, I'm an anti-racist, it means that they've actually thought about racism, 
right? They've thought about racism. Um, and it's in Ibram Kende, I think he's, he's one of the historians that are, is leading in, in this movement. He says that the opposite of a, of a racist person is an anti-racist, right? And so it, it just, for me, it resonates more because it means that, okay, this individual at some point thought about racism and decided, no, I'm actually anti-racist and, um, um, and, and is willing to look at um, their self, their action, and also the, uh, the policies or systems in place that um, have created um, the power imbalances. Um, and 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 I think it's just um, even for us at the I guess at at at, at an individual level um, that's even something that even for myself of uh, being a person of color um, I have to say out loud I'm anti-racist because I am right so um, so I think that's that's the difference for me. Yeah, thank you and. Um... If you look at public health practitioners uh, and public health students now, um, what are some concrete steps that they can take to move towards anti-racist policies and practices in public health and, and, and why does that matter? So when I was a public health student, um, health equity wasn't our part of our curriculum. Um, it was actually, um, I think, it actually um, promoted some of those structural imbalances that we're, we're trying to fight. Because um, even when, when health outcomes are discussed in, in classes, um, we start to talk about, um, you know, how the, all the vast disparities in the African-American population or the immigrant population, right? So for even myself as a person of color, I didn't even understand as a student how some of that I was internalizing because it's such a negative data that is, 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 is infused within our curriculum, right? So um, it's always talking about um, how negative people are of color are doing. And so I think that there's opportunities for us to take a step back um, and, and change our curriculum because um, even for um, white students, um, the notion of white privilege is very important in public health. What does that mean? What, is, what, is, what does white privilege mean? Or what does it mean to, to come from a, um, a group that has had advanced, advantage um, historical advantage. Um, so being able to understand that, so as um, they go into the field, the, the lenses in which they look at things are very different. Um, and so I think that public health, um, if we, we are going to achieve public health 3.0 and become the community health strategist with an equity focus, it's also important for us, um, those in the practitioner role, um, to work with um, those in the, the academic environment so that we can look at our curriculum and, um, and strengthen that so the students are prepared to serve all, all populations in an equitable manner. Very good. 
Speaking of an academic environment, I'm I'm currently in an academic environment, and sometimes I find myself a little confined and and have a need to do um, uh, the the ground works more so on that participatory action um, process. And so, um, a question to you is: um, Are you still in the academic environment, uh, and and as well uh, a practitioner? Um, if you had your choice, um, which which one would you rather have? <laughs> oh, wow, wow. I was trained to be a researcher, but I, 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 um, I got my um, undergraduate degree in public administration. Um, throughout my um, undergrad and graduate work, I, um, I volunteered, I was involved in community-based organizations, um, and it was until the final year um, of my doctorate, um, I felt an absence um, because, you know, in academia, they'll tell you that publications are the currency to your success. Um, <laughs> and I, I love writing. Um, I absolutely do. But I felt that um, if I stay in academia, the more and more I'll be disconnected. I'll write, I'll do some research, I'll publish, but I'll be disconnected with, with, um, with what's going on in the field. But if I'm in the field, I can still be in tune with what's going on in academia. I think that being trained in research has helped me to infuse some of that into practice. Um, I, and I do believe that we, we do need to have um, people that have the research background, the community participatory research that you're talking about. My favorite methodology is mixed methods. So I love, I, I, I love to, to do the, the assessments in that way. Um, and so, um, so I'm in a very good place right now because I can always infuse that. I have a relationship with University of Iowa, with University of Northern Iowa, um, and so I'm 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 very fortunate um, in that in that regard. So, um, but I do think that um, in order for us to change our our approaches, we have to um, unite, and and those in academia really need to spend time understanding what happens at the practitioner level because it's day to day. I mean, you, I can have a schedule for my day and then next thing something happens. And that, that's some of the stuff that excites me, right? Then my change, my schedule is changed. Um, right now, the, what I wish to have is space to be able to write everything that I've learned because I, it's just so, um, so um, um, it's just been such an incredible experience. And so I take that opportunity. Any student that's doing graduate work, I'm willing to just sit down, talk to them, and just share. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As um, one, one person of color talking to another person of color, I, and, and both of us in leadership positions, I find it almost an obligation for us to, uh, at least for me, to dig back and to create opportunities and, and um, 
a pipeline, so to speak, for other people of, of color. And in episode nine of this series, we will uh, talk with Dr. Denise Martinez, Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the University of Iowa College of Medicine about the importance of having a representative workforce and the value of programs that introduce students from historically underrepresented groups into health professions. For me, a health department should be reflective of the population it serves. So we are very intentional about diversifying our departments. We look at our recruitment strategies. We look at how we're, in, how we're even advertising our, our jobs. Um, our vacancies. Also, um, we don't we don't do recruitment. Um, uh, it's not just a manager going out and doing the recruitment on on their own. We do it in a collective manner because I think it's that has helped to hold each other accountable. And we always um, just ensure you know the best um, candidate um, is is the one that we. Um, we recruit, but, um, and beyond that, you know, one of the things we've implemented that has been exciting is the com community health worker model um, and, and recruiting people from the, the particular populations we want to serve. Um, and so I'm excited to see how that's going to um, launch, but it's, it's a job that we just um, uh, developed. Um, and so, um, so those are some of the, the strategies. M my hope is that equity is institutionalized at Black Hawk County to whereby it doesn't need a person of color to be there for it to live. It just naturally is in our walls and how we work and how we do things. And in terms of giving, providing opportunities, you know, um, you make a statement, um, Derek, that has really um, and also a, a burden, but I've had to also recalibrate myself to to understand that um, as a woman of color. So I, I believe I'm the first woman of color um, to lead this health department. With that, you know, you go in with with really a, a lot on yourself and saying, you know, if if I fail at this job, like. That other person, another person of color, might not have this opportunity. But it also took for me to do some of the equity training and realize that that's even wrong for the system that has been created, like has 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 created um, a trauma even in us as leaders because we're constantly. Um, ensuring that we, we don't fail because like um, we want to give that opportunity to others, right? And and not allowing us to be humans, right? And and that to me, that's a problem in itself. And so I've had to recalibrate myself to, to say that, you know, I will do the best I can um, and, 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 and not really carry that, that burden, but making but ensuring that our policies and the way we're recruiting um, is equitable. Thank you, Quinny and Nafisa, for joining Share Public Health and the work you do to promote health equity. Tune in next week to learn about Native American health in the Midwest region. Thank you for joining us today. Special thanks to Rima Afifi, Ann Crotty, Alejandro Scoto, Paul Gilbert, Casey Ginn, Mike Honig, Kathleen May, 
Felicia Pieper, Melissa Richland, Hannah Schultz, and Lori Wachner. Theme music for Share Public Health is composed by Dave Hohen and Roger Heilman. Funding for this webinar is provided by the Health Resources and Services Administration. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation and transcript.